What's up? What's up? What's up? Podcast world. How's everybody doing out there? Chat building another episode of the foul life podcast. This is the peace of mind. Sig sour podcast series, part of our family here at the foul life podcast brands. And we're so excited for today's guest. You know, we have put out a lot of these Sig sour episodes talking about what brings us peace of mind and how do we defend our homes, our families, our communities, security, you know, that peace of mind that you have when you lay your head on that pillow and go to sleep. And my guest today has provided myself and pretty much every single person listening to this podcast and not listening to this podcast in America, a peace of mind with his past, his history in our military, our armed forces, and his dedication to serving our country and protecting our freedoms and rights and giving us that peace of mind when we do lay our heads down and our daughters and sons and our wives and all of our immediate family and extended family and friends go to bed at night knowing that we are safe. And I know that there's things that can pop up, but as a whole, our military has dedicated themselves to providing us with rights and freedoms and that sense of security that we loan for. That's what we want. And they even fight for rights of people that don't even see eye to eye with what we believe in. And that's okay too. The military doesn't decide who they're fighting for. They go and they fight for all Americans. And that's what's so badass about my guest today. I could talk about his accolades forever, but I don't know if Jason St. John is the type of personality that wants anybody to brag on him. But I will start this off, Mr. Jason St. John, by saying thank you very much from the bottom of my heart for everything you have done in your military career to fight for our freedoms and rights over here in the United States of America. Well, I, I, I appreciate the kind introduction, but, I, you know, whenever anyone says that, I, I just like to tell them thank you for, you know, paying our salaries, paying their taxes and, and, and ensuring that the military is fully supported, you know, from an equipment perspective, but from the bottom of their hearts, it's 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 really profound. You know, I've seen a difference in how the military was kind of appreciated in the 90s to how the military is appreciated now after the last 25 years. So thank you for that, Chad. Yeah, and I mean that. And I think that it's something that um, I don't know if you know, taking something for granted comes into mind when I, when I see military and I want you to talk to me a little bit about this, Jason is knowing what you went through and knowing what you saw over there and the experiences when you see somebody in uniform, like I just came back from a, a big freedom hunters, um, event down in South Carolina. It was awesome. Mr. Anthony Pace put it on great organization. Um, but I thanked a lot of veterans, a lot of them, like everyone I saw. And I find myself now going out of my way to do that. If I see somebody wearing a Vietnam veterans hat or a U.S. Navy hat, something that tells me that they take pride in their past and their career in the military and what they did. How is that taken by, is it okay for me to go up and thank them? Is that what they're looking for wearing that hat? Or what is an American supposed to do when they see that? I don't want it to be to where I'm like intruding somebody's space to go say, thank you for what you did. But I find myself doing that quite a bit. What are your feelings on that? I, th I think that, you know, everyone evolves over time, right? But I think that you'll find with most veterans, there's a humility to it, right? So when you walk up and say, thank you, you know, I, I really don't know in my heart what you're thanking me for. Um, you know, it was a life that 
and I, I'm not speaking for everyone, of course, but it's a life that I desired, a life that I chose. And, and I think it's a very selfish life. So, you know, I'm thankful for all the people left and right of me that, you know, loved me, stood by me, supported me throughout the years, you know, and when, when a complete stranger comes up and says, thank you, uh, for me, it's kind of tough because like I said, I think, I think I owe the thanks to them. They're, they're the ones that supported, they're the ones that supplied, you know, the revenue for the military to stand up with the finest equipment. They're the ones at home standing behind us and supporting us. Um, but you know, sometimes it's difficult, but what I would tell you is it, it doesn't get old either. Right. You know, cause I, I think like I was talking about in the early nineties, you know, you had more of a 50, 50 element. You had people that would say, thank you, but you didn't get it all the time. Right. You, you know, you, you might get a little here and there. And most of the times the thank yous you got were from veterans themselves. And then after nine 11, you just seen a, a great spike in American pride and, you know, pride in our military. And, you know, it, you've seen it, you know, since that time, just the average person seems to be much more grateful for those that, that make those sacrifices. You know, so what I would say is, is it's always well received for sure. I, I, I see that. And I got to ask you something about your statement just now in a in a in a career that embodies so much selfishness of giving yourself. And we hear these words sometimes. And I and I'm so glad that you didn't have to do it, but I know that you saw brothers and sisters go through what we call the, the ultimate sacrifices. They, they were perished in war, in combat, in theater. How can you sit here and tell me that you felt selfish about your career when it is so much selfishness that goes into almost get, giving your life up in some instances or dying for your country? How could you ever utter the words that you were selfish in your career? I'm kind of confused on that. Well, you know, for me, it comes from the place that, I drug everyone along my journey and those those individuals had no choice. So when I say no choice, of course, they could decide to stay with you. They could, you know, they could argue against it. They could, you know, you, you there's people in the military who have family members that, you know, don't talk to them because they chose this pathway in this life. And I was blessed enough to have people left and right of me through my entire career and my entire process who was al always there for me, supported for me, feared for me, you know, always exhibited love. Um, you know, when you talk about folks that have, have, have given, um, you know, whether it's their life, whether it's a limb, whether it's an emotional standpoint where, you know, they're struggling with the things they've gone through. I think if you asked every single one of them, I think a high percentage of them would do it again because they believe in something so much that they're willing to sacrifice, like I said, their personal lives. And then it just escalates from that point on, right? Everyone gave something. You know, whether it was just a, something as simple as missing a child's birthday or a child's birth or an anniversary or a birthday or a family member's wedding. I mean, those things are just normally given that you're, you're not going to make those things. And so, you know, there's always a sacrifice on such a, you know, a more minute level in that regard of, you know, average everyday experiences. But, you know, I, I had a I had a good friend, um, you know, probably my best friend. Well, not probably my best friend for sure. Um, that didn't didn't come back and you know it was an easy celebration for me because I could look at what he would have wanted in his life and if I gave him two choices I think he would have said I could either die as an old man with a bunch of grandkids around me the guy loved children and or I could I could put my name on a granite wall and everyone could walk by it and see my name in perpetuity as as someone who gave his life for his country and, and I think that would be his second choice, either live a long and prosperous life and, you know, realize all of those familial um, uh, achievements, or it would be to to really embody that sacrifice and, 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 and 
for the world to know that, you know, he was okay doing what he was doing. So, Well, I sense when you speak of this man, what was his name? Are you allowed to say his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, Jared Van Alst. You 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 see you get worked up about him and you and you use the word celebrate. Um, how long when you come back from a mission and something like this happens? Does it go away? Does the pain go away? I mean, I, I'm trying to relate it to somebody that was did not serve time, Jason. I'm trying yeah. to relate to somebody like me that lo- I lost my dad at a young age. I was 30. He was only 54. He was my best friend. He was my brother's best friend. And all of a sudden he's gone. Um, and it seems that the pain never goes away. It does, you know, it, it does get a little bit easier to deal with. You accept it as, as time goes on, but it's still been 16, 17 years and I feel pain every day from it. Um, how does it, how does it personally affect you to know that you went through that and served by somebody that didn't make it back? Well, you know, I, I mean, there's a couple of things, right? There's the personal expectation that you could potentially make that sacrifice as well. Right. So, you know, when, you know, I lost my parents at a young age as well. They were not quite as young as your father, but I've, you know, I lost all three parents in the early six in their early sixties. And so, you know, you, you don't have an expectation of losing someone you love that early in life. Right. You're, you're, especially as a, as a young man, right. When you're, you think, I think you said you were 32, 30 years old when your father passed, yep. you know, you're just really getting your feet underneath you as a man, right. You're just at a position where you're going to be able to start giving back to your parents. Right. So I think there's, I think there's probably some things to deal with there that, you know, that I deal with my parents is that, you know, I never got a chance to give them, treat them to some vacations and take them a few places like I could today and probably where you're at today. Um, But when you talk about as far as the pain going away, um, you know, I don't know. It's, 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 you know, I, I'll kind of share a somewhat personal story. We, we lost a dog to a car wreck, right? He got run over and, he was only a couple years old and it was very, very devastating specifically in the moment. But what was more devastating was when you would go into the kitchen and he wasn't by your feet. And when you'd sit down on the couch, he wasn't by your feet. There was these continuous and constant reminders of, you know, of that loss. And, you know, when my mom passed, I live in Georgia, she lived in Iowa. And in some ways it was almost easier in the aspect that I didn't have a reminder every five minutes. Of course, my thoughts always consider my mom the house is littered with pictures of her I see her but you know I transitioned to the celebration of what time I had and what she gave me and then you know that's what I can look at it when I look at my military friends and my best friends and a few of them that didn't come back was you know you live a very very full life in the military you know in some ways you're on you're on a constant adventure, right? You know, at a minimum, you, you've, you're going to le- reach a level of self-discovery that very few people have an opportunity to reach. And then secondarily, I mean, the ads that get you in the army, you know, travel, see the world, you know, you remember seeing them on TV, there's a lot of truth to that. So not only is there truth to being able to see the world, it's also to see the way the world exists and to have an appreciation for what you have back home, you know, to, to know that in 30 to 35 years and 23 to 28 years, however old some of the folks were that didn't come back is they lived a much fuller life in in that amount of time than some people live in their entirety. And so, you know, I think you can look at it. And I, I think if you realize that people accepted those challenges and they accepted the risk and they knew that that was a possibility, I think that you can kind of put your heart at rest that 
you know, they died doing what they believed in, you know, and so there's some there's some solace in that, I think. It's a completely different way of looking at what I would think somebody would look at this type of career or losing somebody. It's so mature and so like, I guess, refreshing to know that there are ways to celebrate those who perished in a way to what they deserve and that they might not have expected to be celebrated that way, but they would respect it because of what you just said and, and, and seeing the world in its entirety and that short amount of life, as opposed to, you know, not living life up to its fullest, but living into your seventies, maybe. So what, if you don't mind, Jason St. John, tell my audience, please, what did you do for the military and, and give us a little bit of the background, please. Yeah. So, you know, I, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, upper Iowa farm country, um, you know, graduated high school, went on to the job market for a couple of years. Uh, I actually wanted to come in the army in 93, um, went to the recruiter, didn't have a great experience, bowed out of that, and then decided to join up in 95. And in, in 95, went through the normal, normal progress to get to 75th Ranger Regiment, you know, basic training, airborne school, Ranger indoctrination program, and then was assigned to 3rd Ranger Battalion out of Fort Benning in uh, August of 1995. Um, at that time, um, I was an ACO Alpha Company and was a Gustav gunner. Uh, for your audience, a Gustav is a, you know, 84 millimeter recoilless rifle. Um, it's really kind of the dredge of the jobs that you don't want, realistically, in my opinion. It's, it's, uh, it's you know, a 24 pound steel tube wrapped in carbon fiber and fiberglass that you have to carry around while everyone carries a rifle, right? So, um, I was fortunate to graduate from that by hassling my platoon sergeant to. Uh, you know, keep sending me to sniper school. Um, and at that time in Ranger Regiment, you didn't really get any beneficial schools. And I'm, per I'm pretty sure it's probably the same way until after you graduated Ranger school. Um, we had a shooting competition across the battalion and I ended up taking second place. Um, and my platoon sergeant told me if I finished in the top three, he'd send me to sniper, sniper school. So I went to sniper school, I think October, November of 96. And then from that point on, came back and was assigned as a sniper in third ranger battalion and moved from the company level where we only had a squad per company and then in the late 90s 99 it moved into a platoon size element at headquarters house and headquarters company and so from 96 until 2000 well excuse me 97 till 2003 mid 2003 i was a sniper in the third ranger battalion down at fort benning then after that, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm, I'm, no, you go ahead and continue. Well, I get, you know, that, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, kind of the unique aspect of that was in standing up the sniper platoon. So you know, in the, in the early nineties, there was a shortage of NCOs within uh, the battalion. So they disbanded the sniper sections uh, to fulfill, you know, squad and team leader positions throughout the, the regiment. And then, like I said, they stood it up back in 99 and kind of the benefit of it standing up at that time was as it didn't exist for five years, we were very, they were very liberal in allowing us training time. So in re, instead of doing some, you know, platoon size, company size training events, we, we got out of a few of those events so that we could focus on honing our skills. So we went to the range daily. Um, I remember the first year I was a, the first year in battalion, I was a sniper. My gun, my gun log had over 26,000 rounds fired that year just just you know single shot bolt action m24 sniper rifle so realistically within that amount of training you can't help but 
become at least decent, if not, you know, excellent. Um, during that time frame, I was very fortunate. My reenlistment times came up as certain schools came up. Um, I was able to go to, I think at the time, if not the majority, if, if not all the majority of the services sniper schools. So I went to the Marine Corps basic course. I went to the, um, at the time it was called SOFIC special operation or SOTIC special operations target interdiction course. I went to the Navy SEAL sniper course. Um, like I said, I went to the Army Sniper course, and then I did a few other like level two courses, which were you know run by the Army, um, and and really fortunate and and, and probably expected realistically it, at all of those courses, I was the uh, top shooter and the honor graduate of all those courses as well. So, but what I would say in that is is really probably only the first one was a real accomplishment in the sense that most of the other individuals I went to those courses with had, you know hadn't been to a sniper course, so. You know, I had, I had a lot more experience, and it, was, it really should have been expected that I did well in those courses. But, you know, I, I, I don't know if, you know, it, it, within my little circle, that's kind of a little thing you put on your business card, I would say, is that I went to all the service schools. I'm not sure if anyone else has, you know. Um, so it's kind of a neat little thing to accomplish. But it was all a timing thing, you know. When you start talking about things like baseball, um, and I'm just comparing what you do to other athletic events, you talk about, like, a five tool player, you know, that, that baseball player, those scouts are going to look for speed, bat speed, arm strength, baseball intelligence. And I guess I'm missing one. Oh, in, in glove work, you know, how, how can you work your glove and your defense? Give me those same tools that, and maybe you don't go into the military with these tools, you know, as a baseball player, you might be a five tool player in high school or college and go in the draft. What tools do you acquire to become what you quote unquote call an excellent sniper? Well, you know, I think it starts with a young age, right? And this is kind of one thing that I'm, you know, I'm kind of remiss about it in a way that, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, we, you know, when I say kid, you know, I'm talking, you know, 14, 15 years old, about the time that you can have a friend that's got a driver's license. You know, we, we just go to the hardware store, pick up a brick of 22 for $7 and 49 cents for 500 bullets. And we'd spend almost every single Saturday and, and sometimes most Sundays just plinking. I mean, we would, everyone would buy a brick of 22 and we'd go out to the gravel pit and we'd just shoot, you know? And, uh, you know, I think that it starts there, right. You know, and you know, when I say I'm remiss is shoot with the cost of everything and 22s almost being unaffordable. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. I think that kids don't have that opportunity, right. You know, I could go mow a yard and I could go shoot 22 all day long. Um, so but, you know, in the come in the military, um, you know, and as a young man, you're, you're driven to, to, for that lifestyle. You want to excel. You're, you're pushing yourself. I, I think, you know, wanting to be in Ranger Regiment and wanting to be a part of, you know, a, a, an exceptional organization pushes you further. Um, I, I think the fear of failure and your ego pushes you even further. Um, you know, I would say most people accomplish, I'd say a lot of people accomplish a lot of things in the military because they don't want to fail themselves, let alone fail the guys left and right, you know, so... I think they achieve things because of that inability to, to, to fail. Now, when you get back to like sniper stuff, you know, the most, the most, the easiest thing to understand is, is the fact that, Hey, I can, I can point a gun and I can pull the trigger, right. That, that I'm going to be able to be an accurate shooter. Right. So you, you work through those things, but when you start talking tools, you know, I would say the most complex one is not even being on the gun. It's, it's being the individual who's working the winds, who's, who's working the environmentals, who's really, working the mathematics of how to predict and eliminate all the variables that go into delivering an accurate shot. Um, you know, it's funny, you, 
you know, you were in, when I was in middle school and high school, you know, your teachers were always like, you're going to use math every day, you know, and as a sniper, that's, that's a hundred percent true, you know? And so, you know, being able to, you know, look at the wind, look at, you know, look at the wind, look at, uh, you know, mirage, look at direction, look at distance, you know, divide that by itself and then come up with a solution for what the wind's going to do to drift that bullet and be able to take that out of the equation by either dialing it on your scope or holding it against the target. You know, all of those things, you know, are, they take a long time to master specifically the winds because, you know, you, you don't get that experience as much as it is to pull the trigger. But, you know, then then you get into where it really becomes you know, that's just the, the basic rudimentary relationship between a shooter and a spotter, right? Is one guy's got to be able to deliver an accurate shot. And one guy's got to be able to take out the variables. So when you start talking, you know, in the baseball context, you know, you know, you, you got a guy who's a good defensive, but doesn't have a very good bat. He doesn't make it on the field. Right. Um, you know, it's so when you start making it on the field, it's, it's really kind of a jack of all trades with as, as minimal mastery as you can get, right? So you have to understand combo. You know, you're out in the woods by yourself. So you have to understand UHF, VHF, SATCOMs. You got to understand how to, you know, to, to be able to raise and get everyone and, and, and do those things. You have supporting fires training that you have to do for calling in helos and calling in artillery mortars. You know, you've got to understand all of that aspect of it. You know, there's a element of, of, of medical you have to understand. And then you have to, then you have to have a very, strong strong understanding of strategic and tactics because you know you're supporting some maneuvering elements and you've you've got to be in a position to ensure that you're not only you're in the right place but you understand where everyone's at so you know that those things come with time and experience and obviously training but uh i would say that's probably it you know your, your individual sniper marksmanship your ability to call wins strategic and tactical understanding of the mission itself and then all the supporting tasks to make that happen your basic uh, infantry tasks you know, land navigation and movement, your combo tasks, your call for fire task, and, and your medical tasks. That's a lot of tasks. Yeah, it's like I said, yeah, like I said, you end up being a, a jack of all trades, right? And, and trying to master as many as you can. And then you have to, de- and then you have to deliver the shot, which is, I mean, it's a lot easier said than done when you start putting all the mathematics into it, the windage, and you have your partner there. Um, I have to try to get a picture of one thing that you said in there about being in the woods and, so, and, and some, you know, you're alone or you're with your partner. Explain to me, Mr. Jason St. John on that part of it is in a mission. Am I picturing it right? Like you see the movies like Tom Berenger and Sniper or Mark Wahlberg in the movie, The Shooter and the opening scene of that. Um, I don't know if you watch those kind of movies. I do not watch war movies. I don't, I, I watch Shooter, but it wasn't really a whole, you know, it wasn't like a Saving Private Ryan or a Full Metal Jacket. I've always had a real hard time watching war. I haven't watched um, the Chris Kyle story. I have not watched the Marcus Luttrell story. I haven't watched any of these. Um, I don't know if you do, but I'm trying to get a, a good, valid, vivid picture of what it is. Do you get dropped off, just you and your teammate, and you have you get dropped off in the low country, and you have to find a vantage point and understand the woods and be a woodsman out there of the sun and and how the earth lays and how to navigate mountainous terrain and how to how to make sure that you can get from point A to point B to get your vantage point to deliver the shot. Run me through that if you can. Yeah, I would you know just to start off, I would say ninety five percent of all of my real world mission experience was what we would call assault support. And that would be something where, 
you know, you, you, you actually might be the one that's leading the platoon into an objective. You offset, you know, two, three, 400 yards. If it's at nighttime, it might be 110 to 200 yards. And you're providing support over the maneuvering element while they actually conduct the mission. So you could either, you know, maybe kick off the mission or, you know, you're there to ensure, you know, security and, and, and overwatch while, while the, you know, elements getting in position and while they're executing the mission. So, you know, 95% of what you would do with the organization I come from would, would, would entail that. Um, the other 5% is, is, is exactly as you described. Um, now I would say, you know, we probably trained 60, 40 assault support and 40%, you know, woodsmanship and more of that traditional role. Um, you know, kind of the one thing that is kind of unique or, you know, that it's, it's worth talking about is that, you know, in the nineties, the last time really anyone had been to war was Panama slash Somalia, right? For third battalion. So 89 was Panama and 93 was Somalia. I came in in 95 and by 95, there was probably only about 20 to 25 people left over from Somalia of, of, of 120 that were, were there. And by 99, you probably had two or three and maybe two or three Panama vets. So within 10 years period of time, you lost all your combat experience, right? So a lot of your training in, in the 90s and pre you know, global war on terror was really oriented about real, you know, real generic type military training and not specific to, you know, what has evolved since the global war on terror, right? So you would do a lot of patrol base where a platoon would walk through the woods, they'd sleep at night, they'd move to another place, set up a objective rally point, get out their equipment, execute the objective, you know, withdraw, grab their equipment, and then walk again for another night until, you know, we'd, we would do that Monday through Friday, you know, and the sniper would, you know, like we'd go on training events where a sniper team might be, you know, um, route reconnaissance, and they might be a click and a half or a thousand or a, a thousand meters in front of the moving element, you know, and they're, and they're guiding them in, or they're setting them in, or they're getting, you know, objective intel before, you know, they put in the supporting elements for the, for the, for the mission. When you fast forward to 2000 from 2001 on, you know, after the first combat deployment, everyone in your battalion, basically everyone in your battalion has combat experience. And as you get into 2010, you know, most people have three to five years of experience or you know, three to five years deployment experience, let alone maybe more. And so it just kind of, you know, the training regimen today after 20 years of combat is obviously much different. It's more focused on really understanding of what the real world situation is. Because when you look at Panama, Panama was a month. You look at Somalia, it was, you know, also a month, you know, so being in constant and continuous combat rotation, like the 75th Ranger Regiment was for the entire Afghan and global war on terror campaign, there, there wasn't a day that went on that they didn't have a couple of companies to a battalion deployed in support of that effort. So when you have 20 years of continuous and constant fighting, the evolution of understanding the evolution of tactics, techniques, and procedures, and the evolution of your training, you know, stays with that. So now when you get back into that 5%, you know, um, you know, a, 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 a kind of a really neat mission in Afghanistan 2002 was, um, you know, moved up to Afghani pack border, um, probably, you know, 9,000 feet above sea level, sitting on mountain passes, observing people, you know, putting in IEDs on roads, you know, and, you know, we're out there for 12 days, just, you know, myself, my teammate, 
and I had a mortar team with me. So we had, we had, we had five people with us, you know, and we were out by ourselves. Um, QRF was probably about six to seven hours away. And so, you know, if you got into any trouble, it was six to seven hours before they'd be able to get up there because, you know, the, the mountain roads up there are very narrow, pretty te- treacherous, you know, they're not designed for the vehicles that were moving up there. And so it's not like you can just hammer down and, you know, put the pedal down and, and, and get there now, you know, so now, you know, that's where you start talking about the jack of all trade stuff is the benefit is, is, you know, got a mortar team on the ground with us, got the ability to call for fire so I can bring in helos and we can, we can work through some fast mover stuff if we needed some, you know, heavy support, if we got into, into some trouble. So that's where you really have to have an understanding of everything you're doing to be able to be entrusted with a mission like that, you know, cause you know, five people wandering around for 12 days with limited supplies, you know, is, is, is a, is a very dangerous thing for a commander to sign off on, right? He's sending five guys out there that he has very limited contact with. And, uh, you know, if something goes wrong, it goes wrong, but you I know, don't know. Was, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Jay. No, 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 I was going to say, but you know, on the flip side of it, cause I grew up outdoors and I grew up outside, you know, like, you know, that mission was just cool. You know, I mean, it was for 12 days, I got to be up in the, you know, Oh, you know, when you're a, when you're a small element, there's a lot, there's a lot more that you see than when you're 40 people walking around the woods. Right. So, you know, one night, you know, we're walking up there and I'm walking down a terrace between two cornfields, like up in, up in that part of the country. And I'm sure it's in other places of the country too. They, they do a lot of terrace farming, right? T-E-R-R-A-C-E, terrace farming and terrorist farming sounds, sounds quite, quite identical, but uh, you know, where you chop the ground out, level it out and then take a step and level it out because of the terrain. And I was walking down a trail and, you know, I was lead and it was, it was extremely cool. I mean, I came face, you know, I say face to face, probably 25 yards on a two foot narrow between corn plants, you know, corn on my right, corn on my left. And I come probably 25 yards from a snow leopard, you know, like it was just standing right there on the trail looking at me. And I was like, man, I wanted to shoot that thing so bad, Chad. (laughs) And mount it. Yeah, no, yeah. I was just looking at it and I was like, God, look at that thing. And then I was like, man, I really hope it doesn't decide to come this 25 yards. Right. Cause you know, we're, we're just nowhere to go, but no. it just, tur- it turned around on its tail and it walked off and, you know, uh, you know, I had night vision on and of course he, he had whatever cats have for night vision. He's seen me for sure. You know? So, oh yeah. And, uh, it, but it was just neat to be out there and in, in, in like, if you can appreciate nature, you know, there's, and if you're, if you're, you know, a wildlife guy, like, you know, you're out in the woods and you, you're, you're over in Afghanistan. So, you know, there's, you know, we were by a river and as you know, you're a duck hunter, I'm a duck hunter. And I'm like, what kind of teal are those, you know, see stuff you never get to see. So it was neat, you know, like huge porcupines and hell, I had a pet hedgehog for one deployment just cause it was cool, you know, and it's just neat stuff, you know, to, to, to be able to be in a different part of the country. And, you know, even though all that stuff's going on, you can have a big appreciation for it. It's amazing. You find appreciation in a, in a duck or a snow leopard when your life is on the line, literally like, I got to ask you this, and I don't know if you can answer this, Jason. Um, You said that when you're on these ridges, you're watching the IUDs being put in the ground. IUD is, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's one of the the main culprits of injury and death to a lot of U.S. soldiers in this time of our American military. Is that free? Is that safe to say? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a very guerrilla type, low cost, you know, improvised explosive device. Step on it, drive over it. It's it's very, you know, rudimentary and impossible to detect. So it's it's very effective. So when you're up on this ridge watching these being installed by the enemy, do you 
are you calling in to say to get orders or are you already given orders on what to do? Do you watch them, install them, and then you tell the other crew to go in there and take them out and make sure that they're, that they don't go off? Or how does, how does this part of the mission work? Do you, do you, do you locate them and get a, get a pin on them? And then you send over the crew that takes all, you know, that, that, what is, uh, excuse me for lack of better terms, you just said it a couple minutes ago, but what is the, the crew that takes, that is responsible for disarming bombs? Oh, that's a, that's not a mortar crew. You said, no, it's EOD. So do you call in the EOD to do that or what, what, what's going on right now when you're watching this be done? Well, there's, there's, there's a couple of one on the mission that I'm referencing. The, the important thing for that one was, is, is actually to find out where the source of the IEDs were. So it wasn't that important to determine that, you know, an IED was placed on X intersection and call that out. Of course, we wanted to make sure we identified that, but the more important thing we were trying to do is to find out who was educating the individuals in the region to put them in and where were they storing the stuff to be able to um you know to execute this mission right so you know we were over watching a, a, a broad let's call it a 45 degree point of a valley where we could see you know i mean a, a solid click to the left and a solid click to the right you know with our with our spot and scopes and so what we were trying to determine is you know kind of get an intel on on who was bringing it across when was it coming across and where was it coming from and so what we were able to do on that one and fortunately you only, you know, unfortunately, you only have such a small little segment, but fortunately we were able to um, identify the individuals and they were actually coming over and they were teaching it in front of us. So we would watch them teach an individual on how to place one. And they actually blew a couple up, showing them where to blow, like how to, how to execute them and show them what they would do. And then they gave that guy, you know, a, for lack of better terms, a gunny sack or a potato sack full of stuff and he took it to his house and you know we watched those guys leave and we were able to see where they went to you know then uh you know we we had a couple of teams up and down the valley and we were able to find out where it was originating from and and we ended up you know taking that objective and we ended up taking the objective of the one that they taught so hopefully you know in that situation you know what we did is we we we, we took the the knowledge out of that area at least at least temporarily you know and so now, the other side of it is if you're doing an Overwatch or IED placement, you would just probably, you know, take care of the IED team. You know, they would, they would, they would, that would be another mission that you can do in that situation where you would just eliminate their, 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 their ability to do that. I like how you say eliminate their ability to do that. I kind of know what you're getting at. I, I, I get kind of the idea of, what you went through and what you're what you're now at this time all of this training leads up to those type of occurrences i mean that's what you were really put in this position to do this is your job right is is that part of it and did you did you do you look back on your career when you start talking about that actual part of the job jason st john do you look back at it and 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 think that it could have been done any different as far as uh, i don't know if the, it could have been done as far as the execution any differently or do you wish that getting into that part of the job did you ever have any regrets that maybe you should have been over there for a different task once you actually got into that what you just described no i mean the only the only I, first off, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything about my 22 years in the army. I, I think if, you know, you, you watch the movies where you go back in time and if, you know, there's that butterfly effect, right? So if I change one thing, I don't end up where I'm at today. I don't end up here talking to Chad Belding maybe, you know, and I, I, I don't have my wife and my children and I, I don't have my friends left and right. I mean, my life could be worse, could be better. I don't know, but I'm, I'm very satisfied with where I'm at. 
Um, if I did have any regrets, I would say, you know, I had a period of time where I was at the marksmanship unit as a competitive shooter for the army. And I would say that those years, you know, could have maybe been better spent, you know, in doing more combat deployments, you know? So, you know, I think if I had any regrets, I'd say I probably should have done more if, if that makes sense. But now on the flip side of it is, like I said, I wouldn't change it, even though I have those regrets. Again, I, I don't end up working here at SIG if I'm not a competitive shooter at AMU likely. And, you know, I don't end up working with the people I work with if I change those things. So, you know, when it's all said and done, I've got a, a tremendous amount of satisfaction. You know, we talked earlier about celebrating people's lives and about how much they've accomplished in the time they're on earth, whether it was 35 years or less, you know, it's how I feel. I feel, you know, just, I got no complaints. I think everything in life has, has worked out the way it's worked out. And, I, you know, I've lived a tremendously full life. You know, I'm very, very fortunate to be here today. And, and I have a tremendous appreciation for everything that's happened in my life to make me, to put me where I'm at and to make me the man that I am. So no problems. How, how do you personally in, internalize, and I don't know if you can answer this again. I, I mean, you and I already decided at the beginning of this conversation that anything goes, but if, if you can't answer, I totally understand. You can't answer. I get it. But I have an idea of what you accomplished in your military career. Um, I've studied it some, I've been told some, I've been educated on some of it, but I don't know if you can talk about any of that, but how does it make you feel personally inside your inner psyche, Jason St. John, when combat warriors come back to America and I've heard some take credit for this, whether it was Bin Laden, whoever, there's been movies made, multi-million dollar productions made on this story told by a soldier where I'm sure that there's been some revenue created for that personal gain of that soldier. Now, there's I've heard both sides of it, Jason, of you take this oath and you this code of ethics in the army and the military and the armed forces that that's not what you're in it for. But then you come over here and then, hey, if they have the ability to do that and the right to do that, then it's OK. Is it OK to ask you how you personally internalize that when you see it being done, whether it's a, a multimillion dollar book or a movie motion picture being made or 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 somebody taking like I've heard people say I'm the one that killed him. And I'm like, well, there's a whole bunch that goes in to, or I'm the one that ended that or something. And there's a whole bunch that went into that. And it wasn't just a one man job. How do you personally internalize this? Well, I think that I'll kind of hit this a couple of ways. The first way I'll start is I, I've never seen anyone get a medal for valor. That the first thing they don't say is that this medal was, is for everybody. There was 25, 30 people left and right in me that facilitated this mission. And, I may have been in the right position, but this medal is everyone's. I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone get a medal for valor that didn't have that in their speech to, 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 to give thanks to those left and right of them. The second thing I would say is I don't besmirch anyone for anything in their life, you know, as far as if you like, and you talk about making money off the experience, I, I don't besmirch anyone for that. You know, they, they, their life is their life. They got to do what's right for themselves. You know, if you really want to take a, a Zenish look to it, they were, they were asked to do a lot of things. And, you know, maybe, maybe for them, you know, the repayment of that is, is that they're, they're able to, you know, leverage those experiences in, into something that's profitable for them. So I don't really don't, I don't really besmirch them for that. Now, when you would talk about, say, the emotional toll, um, you know, I, I think that, I think that a lot of people come back and I think everyone obviously deals with things in their own way and everyone has something to deal with, you know, it, it, it can, you know, 
you know, deployments are hard on relationships, right? So even in the most simplest term, being gone for four, six, 12, 15, 18 months, it's, it's not easy on your life. You know, it's, it's, it's tough on your children. It's tough on your significant other. It's, it's tough on every aspect of your, of your, of your, of your life. Right. So even if you're just, you know, not someone who has been exposed to the horrors of war, you've, you've been exposed to the difficulties of being gone for 12 months, 15 months. I mean, you spend a lot of time on the road. You, you understand that there's some difficulties and it takes the right person with you to, to understand what you're trying to accomplish. You know, you're, you're doing what's right for you in your life and you're trying to provide and, you know, you, you need the right person to come along with it. But being on the road, you know, from September through January has takes a toll from time to time. And so it's the same thing, except for that, you know, September through January, you're not home at all. And, you know, and sometimes September to the following September. Now, you know, so no matter what you've witnessed, you've experienced some difficulty in your life, whether, you know, whether that's a relationship breaking down or just, you know, the difficulties of explaining to your children why you're going to go away for another 12 months. Um, Now, what I would say from the other side, emotional toll, you know, I think, when you're in, in an element like the Ranger Regiment, I think that your culture really supports you understanding what you're getting into. Meaning that as an infantryman in the Ranger Regiment, I don't think you're surprised that you're going to be going to war. And so you're much more emotionally prepared for it, how you can be emotionally prepared for it. You can compartmentalize it a little bit easier than other people that weren't expecting it. You know, when you think of a truck driver, um, you know, hauling supplies in Iraq and hits an aforementioned IED. I don't think a truck driver joined the army with the understanding that they'd be driving through and would experience combat the same way that an infantryman expects to experience combat. So I think that culturally, I think it's a little bit easier for an infantryman to experience that stuff than it is for someone who, you know, did not come in to experience that. So I think in some ways, I think it can make it easier to deal with. Now, what I would say is, is, you know, I've, I've talked to, I've talked to some individuals before at, uh, you know, some, you know, the suicide prevention symposiums and stuff. And, you know, I've, I've met a couple individuals that do a lot for that. And I, I think everyone, when we talked about compartmentalizing, I think everyone puts those experiences in, in a locked key in their, in their, in their, in their thoughts. Right. And, you know, and you never know what's going to come out and make you relive those moments. You know, you, you talked earlier about the loss of, of your father. And I talked about the loss of my dog, right? Because I could see, and I'd get reminded by something that was very intimate to that situation. And, and, and it was an instant reminder. So, you know, when you look at, you know, your experiences overseas, if, if your life's good, your faith's good, your family's good, your monetary situation's good, you've got a good solid supporting cast of family and friends, it's much easier for you to deal with anything in your life because you have people you can lean on, you know, but you know, if, if those things start to crumble, then that, that key can get unlocked. So I think the stronger you are with your expectations going into things, the easier it is to deal with it. And the stronger you are and the people that you have left and right of you and the things that you do to keep yourself and that strength and that trust to you is, is, is key to, to being able to transition from that, you know, away from, those, those painful and, and hurtful thoughts. When you start talking about the aftermath, you mentioned suicide prevention, PTSD, onset dementia. I have several friends that have served that are young 
that have faced all of this, um, encountered all of this, dealt with all of this. You seem very educated when you talk. You seem very well read, well written. You have a a great um, sense of the, the the history of the military in a lot of ways. When you're talking, I don't, I haven't talked to you in depth about this, but just listening to you talk, you get it. You 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 know where you came from. You know what the airborne is. You know what the Ranger Infantry is. You know what Somalia was. You know what Panama was. You 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 understand all this, and I'm sure that you picked up on a lot of this through being you know going into the army. And but I don't know if you really take courses on learning all of that is this a way that you dealt with coming back jason st john um did you did you engulf yourself in reading and becoming more aware in life because i'm sure that you saw things over there that could have damaged you and i don't know how damaged you ever got but you seem very well fit and put together as a as a human being after everything you dealt with when some soldiers and infantrymen and warriors come back and face everything that you just discussed. How did you go about keeping your wits? And I, I know you, your, your family and, and your supporting cast was a huge part of that. Take me through how somebody can come back and be where you are, as opposed to being on the other side of the spectrum of facing what you just talked about in maybe suicide and PTSD and things like that. Well, well, first off, I think you forgot handsome in your description. of me. So, <laughs> handsome, so, very handsome. Yeah, very yeah, let's just not put the video on screen if we're okay with that. <laughs> oh, but, knock uh, it off. Just, just for your audience members, I'm very good looking and funny. So. <laughs> you are um, all of that. You know, but I, I don't know. Hold on. I don't know if my question makes sense. I'm just wondering it because it's like I'm sitting here talking to a guy that didn't do what you did. Like, it's like you're so well. It's You had to have, have, have completed so many exercises, in my opinion, to get to this point. Or you're just so strong willed that it didn't really affect you the way I would assume it would somebody. No, I, you know, I think I think one thing to start with, you know, is, is again, I, I'll fall back on culture. You know, I talked about, you know, 75th Ranger Regiment culture, right? You know, it's every cadence you have is is referencing war. Every Everything you see, I know you say don't watch war movies, but everything that's stereotypical in Ranger Regiment isn't in the movies. Like, you know, it's it's all bravado, um, you know, but when you, and, and it's all, you know, kill or be killed culture, right? You know, does that make sense? Like, it's it's yeah. just, you know, it, it is very stereotypical, at least in the 90s it was. Um, now this, the flip side on the culture is, you know, my dad was a Vietnam vet. My grandfather was a truck driver at the battle of the bulge. Um, my grandfather would talk about some things my dad wouldn't talk about much. You know, I had an uncle who was a helicopter door gunner in Vietnam and he wouldn't talk about anything. And, you know, he had some issues from time to time, you know, so I think, you know, when you're raised around it and then you go to an organization that's as strong as the regiment is, I think that helps a lot. And then I think also, I, I think because, and, and probably one of the greatest benefits that came out of, you know, this continuous and constant uh, global war on terror was, you know, regiment and the army, not just regiment specific, I use, I use that loosely, but the army really put a high focus on counseling, you know? And so, you know, I don't know when it came in, let's call it 2010-ish, you know, Ranger Regiment started having, you know, in-house psychiatric or psychologists that would come that that were housed there, paid there, lived there, and that anytime you had any issues, you know, you you could talk to them, and I, and I you know I can't speak from experience, but what I would say is I'd imagine their doors hardly opened in the beginning, right? 
because you know that same person that is in ranger regiment doesn't have any issues or problems right even though we all <laughs> everyone in the world has issues or problems but culturally i think it's it's been much more accepted and i think the army's done a very good job for people to understand that hey everyone needs to just talk about stuff every every everybody feels a little crazy sometimes you know and so you know everyone just needs affirmation that what they're thinking is the right thing to be thinking about and so you know the army from a cultural perspective did a very good job in driving people to understand it's okay to talk to folks you know and so whether that's something in your personal life or whether that's something in your professional life and so i think that that's I think that's very beneficial. And then again, I, I, I go back to as shocking as things are, <clears throat> they're not as shocking as if you expect to see them, if that makes sense. It, it does. And you keep going back to the way you were prepared for it, um, that you knew you were going to go to war as opposed to the truck driver that was hauling supplies and runs into something on a dirt road. Um, you were prepared for it. You It was almost like you... Or t- it's almost like you're telling me that you can heal easier because you were ready for it. You were like, I don't know what to really apply that to in, in, in everyday life or compare that to, but you, you can come off of it because you went into it being like, Hey, look, I've, I've been prepared for this. I know that this is what's getting ready to happen. And it's almost like you mentally did yourself right that when you come out of it, and I'm not saying that you didn't face any adversity. I'm sure that everybody does, like you said, but you, it just, it's, it's, it's very offsetting to me to talk to somebody that saw what you saw and, and be so well put together. Maybe it's just my immaturity in the space of not talking to enough, uh, enough airborne Rangers or enough army Rangers or sniper Rangers that, that went through this. Maybe they're all like you, I would assume they're not, but it just seems to me like you have a, that you're very well structured still for what you did in the military for those 22 years. I think an easy way of understanding it is I bet it's very difficult for a doctor to walk out for the first time and tell someone in, in, in the waiting room that their loved one didn't make it. And then after 15 years of doing it, it's probably not as emotional for him. Right. Oh, and yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure their preparation of being able to, you know, if I was a an army chaplain and I had to walk up to the door of a mother and, and knock on that door and, and, and tell them that their son or husband or, daughter or wife hadn't made it home I, I couldn't handle that job you know I, I would probably turn and run I don't have that kind of strength you know but for those that do that on a regular basis I'm sure it's a bad day for them I'm, I'm sure for them sometimes it's bad weeks and there's probably situations where they look back and you know wish they'd have done something different as well but you know that's just kind of I think they're prepared that that's part of their job that's it's another thing you said just now hits hard of that you don't have the strength to do something of being a chaplain that goes it's almost like these homicide detectives that have to go and tell these families when oh. they when they lose one like that's a tough deal my mom's a oncology nurse practitioner in the cancer ward you know so she's constantly seeing death and it and it affects her it affects her and i'm like how you know maybe 20 years into her career it doesn't affect her like it did first but i think all of it added up maybe has has taken its toll on her psyche a little bit too because of her always being in the midst of it and you were ready to perform your duties and your job because you were prepared for it but it just seems so i i i guess it just seems so an amazing 
attitude or amazing look at life to when somebody like yourself and I've, I've hunted with several infantry guys and, and I've been around many special forces, you know, members that all they ever say is that I want to go back. I would have gone back. That's where I need to be. And that's a, that's an unbelievable attitude. It shows you that that's really what you were put on earth to do and that you trained yourself to do. And that might go back to the beginning of our talk, Jason St. John about that selfishness of like, this is what I'm going to do. And I, and the people that are going to support me and come along with me are going to be the ones that are going to stay a part of my life and I need them. But maybe that's what you meant by selfish is that this really is what you were going to do no matter what nothing was going to stop you and you were prepared for all the adversity that was going to come with it i've always looked at it and been told nothing can prepare you for what you're getting ready to see but maybe the army does a, a, an exceptional job and i'm not saying the navy and the marines and the and and the air force and all of those don't but it seems to me like you're very well suited to live an everyday life and and a lot of veterans that come back have problems with that that i've encountered yeah i mean i th- th- it, it exists it's not you know what i would what not to get too far what i would say on it is you know having the benefit of 95 to 2001 of training and you know to have been in the army for six years before going to combat probably is a lot different experience than someone who joined in 2004 and within six months is, is, you know, six months to a year is going to combat. Right. So, you know, I think there's a big difference there as well, you know, and when I go to when, you know, my first deployment in 2001, I would have been 29. Let's see, actually. Yeah. I turned 29 on, you know, uh, I think what a week after we jumped into Afghanistan, you know, so, you know, so, you know, being 29 is probably different than being 18 as well. Right. I mean, it's gotta be. So I think there's a lot of things in place there, but I, you know, I, I see it across this, this, at least, you know, special operations community. I see less of less percentage wise of people that have a hard time dealing with it than probably, you know, but I don't experience the rest of, you know, all my friends are within this community, you know, and I've got a few that are, weren't, you know, weren't special operations, but, you know, everyone that I encounter, everyone that I work with seems to be in a pretty solid place. And, you know, being a careerist who did, you know, 22 years, most of the people that I'm friends with also did that amount of time, right? So I think that they are also in a very healthy situation. Um, now, what I said earlier was, yeah, it's all compartmentalized. It lives up there, right? I mean, there's there's nothing to say that a bad event, you know, uh, you know, I, I, shoot, you've seen the movie Legends of the Fall, right? Yep. You know, Brad Pitt, horse gets tangled up in barbed wire and it brings up an instant bad memory, right? You know what I mean? So there's not saying that within this community that if someone's family falls apart and financially they're ruined or they have an addiction that they can't live in that dangerous realm of, of beating themselves up over or being dominated by those dark thoughts. I mean, it, it truly is there. It's just, you know, it really is the ability to have a supporting cast around you and to, to, to ensure that your life is in a position that, you know, if you do have those issues, you're in a position to, to, to deal with them. You know, I think. No, so far, that's very well so, said. So, so far, so good. So, I'll tell well, you, if, if, if you, I'll, I'll tell you about jumping into Afghanistan, if you want. I do. Okay, so, um, obviously, September 11th happened, you know, and then, you know, we're, we're training up, and, you know, it was kind of a fun thing, because, you know, our train up for the mission was, you know, we're, 
we'd be out on a, a, a mock-up objective here on Fort Benning. And then there was periods of time where we you know, couldn't train because there was concerns about satellites and all that type of stuff. Right. So we're training up and stuff. And we go over to uh, at the time, Oman, and we're stationed out of Oman and Oman is uh, uh, I think we were on an Island off of Oman uh, uh, at the time. It was a, I don't I think it's now it's a full blown air force base. I'm not sure, but Omar Sharif airfield, I think was the name of it. And anyways, you know, we're, we're training and stuff and I think it's, you know, October 9th, evening of October 18th, morning of October 19th, so the parachute assault. And so it's, it's, you know, it's kind of that, like, you know, GP medium tent city that everyone's living in. And you've got, uh, you got air force folks there, you've got other elements there. And, you know, and so anyways, let's get ready to jump and, you know, we're walking down and everyone's carrying their rucksack and their, their weapon in, in their weapons case. And, you know, you're all done up with your face makeup and, got your hair did and uh you know you're walking down this tent city you know and, and you know like i said keep in mind war hasn't happened in a long time and so people are standing outside their tents and you know they're cheering you on and like go get them boys it's really really hollywood-esque realistically you know and you're loading up on c-130s and you know i, I remember talking to a guy you know and, and give him you know you actually did the thing like you've seen in the movies like you know hey you're not going on this mission here's a letter you know, you, you do that stuff. Right. So you get on the, you get on the bird and it's a three and a half hour flight and you know, everyone's scared shitless, you know, no matter what you want to say. Right. You know, you don't know what to expect or what's going on. And so we're flying over there and, you know, to understand, you know, an airborne airborne, you know, parachuting is, is, you know, you have a jump master, he's the guy in the door and he's the one that gives you the commands, you know, and the stand up, get ready, hook up all that business. And then, you know, in the combat, he's the one that jumps out the plane first and you follow him in training. He jumps out last, but in, in, uh, in, in combat, he jumps out first. And so we're flying and I'm, I'm the second jumper, which is a, uh, backup jump master for, for door number two of plane number two. And I won't say the guy's name, but you know, he wasn't the brightest, <laughs> brightest guy, <laughs> but you know, anyway, fully capable to do his job, you know, and Edward flying and, you know, we're, we get the, you know, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, you know, get the one minute and the, the door opens and, you know, we're pretty low. I don't think we're very low, but you can obviously, it's no, no aluminum. You can see the ground and, you know, we're, we're the first in the country there. I, I believe there was some SF elements in the Northern part of the country and we're dumping into outside of Kandahar. And uh, so anyways, you know, gives you one minute. Well, one minute means one minute to go, right? Turn says 30 seconds, 30 seconds to go. And then, you know, the signal to go is the green light goes on. And so the green light goes on and I'm like, I'm like, I turn at him, it's loud, right? And I'm like, green light. And he's like, what? And I'm like, green light. Like I said, the guy's not bright. A minute, 30 seconds, and he had done what the hell I'm telling him 30 seconds later, right? And he turns and looks at it and he just shrugs his shoulders and falls out the door. Like you're supposed to turn and step out. And he's like, okay. And just kind of like tips over and goes out the door. And so, you know, I chase him out or whatever and parachute opens, obviously good, good to go. Well, you know, in training, you know, being in your harness, your guns in your bag, you're very vulnerable. So, you know, if you do a lot of combat assaults, parachute assaults, you know, you undo your equipment as you're on the way down. So, you know, obviously you lower your rucksack, lower your weapon system, um, you know, undid my reserve, rotated it over, undid my chest strap, and then you land. And then all you've got to undo is, you know, is your, is the two buckles in, in, in your crotch seat. And so I also like, you know, undo my tie, undo my clip for my pistol. I hit the ground. Chad, it was Hollywood as hell. I hit the ground. I clear my holster. 
I do a John McClane combat role and I come up on a knee full presentation, right? Just in case someone was, you know, around you when it come down. I mean, it was as badass as it gets. And realistically for, <laughs> for, <laughs> I would say for like three and a half seconds, the war was over. You know, I, I, I had won the war. And then my parachute came down and landed on top. Of me. And I was just completely covered up screaming. Like, I, I don't think I was screaming as loud as it could, but it was literally like the, oh, oh shit. Oh, oh, oh. you know, like trying to get out and I'm tangled up like a marionette in cords and this. And I was, oh yeah. I went from winning the war to just being just screwed, but uh, it, vulnerable as hell. Yeah, it was, how, it, was how, really, it was funny. How many missions total? Parachute missions, only that one. Um, I was scheduled for another one, and I actually gave my seat up to, we had an individual in our platoon that got bumped from that one. And, you know, if you're in an airborne unit, having a combat jump is a, is a big thing, right? And, and being one guy in the platoon without one. So uh, we had multiple teams going, and I asked him if he wanted to take it. So I, I kind of made his day and made his career, right? He ended up with a mustard stain on his jump wings. Otherwise, I'd have had, you know, another one. Um, but then after that, you know, on that deployment it was only a couple missions. Cause that was the first one in, you know, we went to, well, so anyways, we do that mission. And of course, you know, that's a night mission. We take an airfield, there's some other stuff going on. And then we get on the bird to leave, you know, we flush the birds. And so I'm on the last bird out. And, um, I, I, you know, on the military planes, a lot of times the intercoms on with the pilots talking and we're taken off and over the intercom we hear man pad, man pad, man pad, which is, is basically announcing that there's a surface to air missile headed at the bird. And they're like six seconds to impact, you know, we're, we're in the air, you know, like five seconds impact. And there's, I mean, there's, it's standing room only. I'm standing by the back doors, looking out the, looking out the window. There's not even a place for me to sit. There's that many people on the bird. And it's, and he's like four seconds to impact in like three seconds. And I'm just like, you can only imagine the pucker factor that comes from realizing you're going to get shot out of the air and you get a five second countdown, right? It's just, it was like eye rolling. And like, I think I remember looking at my buddy and excuse my language, but I was like, this is such bullshit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like two seconds and then the flares and the chafe go out, the whole night sky lights up. And then they're like, brace for impact, brace for impact. And then they're like, plus one, plus two, plus three, miss, miss, miss. Now, I didn't even know if a damn missile was launched at us or they just wanted to let their flares and chafe off. But if they were playing a joke, it was damn effective. I'll tell you that. Gotcha. Was like, but then, you know, we flew back and you land and, you know, you, you know, you just did a combat parachute assault. And if you're airborne ranger, that's what you've always wanted to do. You come off the bird, you're all excited, you know, and then, um, you know, we had a couple kids that were, you know, a helicopter had crashed in support of that operation, a couple kids. So it takes the wind right out of it. And, you know, as much of a celebration as it is, it's, you know, obviously any, anytime something like that happens, it, it, it takes the wind out of the sails and it's tragic. And, you know, but we did a couple other really good missions. Uh, a couple of them are still classified, I think. I don't even know what that means. I mean, I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, I don't know why they are. I, I don't know, but, you know, they're, they were, they were, they were cool and they were a lot of fun. Um, it was great being a 29 year old guy parachuting in and, you know, and, you know, it was just, it was a neat experience, you know, for that deployment. And then, you know, after that on your deployments, then after that, it's, it's just more traditional type operations, right? It's, you know, flying in and, you know, setting up in a, what they call a cop. Now we'd call it an operating base, but now it's a, you know, company operating uh, uh, base and uh, you just do missions out of there for four months, you know? So um, I think you asked how many missions, you know, that first, that first operation, that first deployment was 
only three missions um, over four, three months. Wait, hang on. Yeah, three months. I, I, I left early on that trip, left like three weeks before everyone else did, um, just because of scheduling for, you know, we sent a good bit of people home. And then uh, first bat replaced us. And that's when they did Roberts Ridge was right after that. But, you know, as far as my, that first, that first deployment, very low op tempo. Um, and then after that, every deployment after that's one or two missions a day, you know, for the next, you know, for the next 15 years for those people who are there. Obviously I didn't do it for 15 years, but um, I got five and a half deployments, I think, you know, like it's not too bad, but there's, I got, I got friends that have 12 and 13, you know, so. What was the longest deployment you did? Yeah. For me, it was only five months. You know, four and so a half. you were doing you were doing two missions at one or two a day for five months. Yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much right. You know, you would you would plan one, and a lot of times you'd plan you know follow on missions. There's you know guaranteed one a night, one hundred percent one a night, and depending on how they go, you you can have follow on missions depending on the intel you get off the objective you hit. You might go into a follow on place, or you know you might actually be driving back and you know. You know, it was, it was kind of a weird thing in the beginning because, you know, in Afghanistan, every every damn house was basically you could do a mission on if you want. I mean, they all got arms and ammunition left over from the Afghanistan war. You know, it was that was another thing that was neat. You know, we were, I think, in 2002, we were in I was in um, Asadabad, which is the part I think it's the Konar province. And that's like the last that was like the province that the, the, the Russians couldn't uh, couldn't take. Right. And there's actually memorials put up by the Russians, like on the side of the road, like granite monuments, like testimony to the Mujahideen fighters and like in Russian talking about, you know, like how hard they were and, 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 and actually, you know, praising them as fighters, you know, Russians left monuments, you know, and when we took Bagram airfield, I mean, Bagram airfield was full of hind helicopters and MIG fighters and, you know, decommissioned stuff that got left behind by the Russians, you know, and the entire infield was mined still. And, Every, everything that wasn't a hard surface was mined by the Russians still in 2001. So there was landmines and all sorts of shit everywhere. It was, it was an insane time. Sounds like it. It's unbelievable. Like five and a half deployments, five months at a time. Now, is that a normal amount of time for a ranger sniper? Yeah, no. So, you know, the deployments are four months and then there might be, you know, like I said, the, the half was two months. The first one was three months, you know, and, and one went a little long. So, I mean, they're four month deployments. Um, yeah. From regiment, that's just, that's kind of the cycle, right? Four months on eight months off right back to four months, you know, with three battalions, it's pretty easy to figure one, two and three battalions, four months at a time. So, um, you know, and, and, you know, think about that from a regiment perspective is, you know, the 75th Rangers had a continuous and constant uh, combat presence for what, 18 years, 19 years. So that, that's, that's, that's a long 19 years. That's, that's a long time to be continuously and constantly at war, you know? Damn. It's amazing, man. Well, I'd give you thanks and I appreciate you coming on here and talking. I could get so much more. We got to do this again and just uh, talk about yeah, a couple more missions. I love learning about it. We definitely have to get on a hunt this fall too. Yeah. We didn't even talk about SIG. I mean, we've, we've only got through maybe two chapters of my book, Chad. Well, I know. And Sig Sauer, I mean, you talk about a freaking monster right now. I mean, what a great company. Huh? How long have you been with Sig? Uh, four years. Um, this July, I think will be four years. And, you know, if some people ask me about it, you know, like what it's like and, you know, and, and you know, you talked about, we, we talked a lot about mental health and stuff like that, but, you know, 
the nice thing about SIG is it's it's been a very easy transition from the military to work for that company because there's a lot of similarities to what I experienced in regiment. You know, it's a high op tempo, no fail, you know, high expectations organization. And, you know, like that's an environment that I like to work in. And, you know, and then I'm also fortunate because, you know, my boss was, you know, Navy special operations. Um, I, I work with actually, you know, who was my sniper partner works in a, you know, he's the one that, you know, it's all who, you know, he's the one that brought my name up the first time. Right. And I actually work with my our old platoon sergeant, you know, so it's kind of like, it's kind of like a third range of battalion sniper platoon light, you know, I've got three guys and then another guy wearing the platoons an instructor that, you know, lives in Arizona and, and, and instructs with the Academy from time to time. So hell it's, it, you know, when you're, when you're lucky enough to work around excellent people, you try to stay with those same people as much as you can. Right. You, there's, there's a lot of faith there. And I owe, I owe my success to, you know, with SIG and the opportunity, at least I owe to them like for opening that door. And then, you know, you make your own path from there, but it, it's an amazing place to work. I, I wish, I really wish that, uh, you know, and it's going to sound like I'm, you know, towing the company line, but I, 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 my family and I are so grateful and thankful that we work for such an amazing company. Um, I mean, they, they're from the top down. It's, it's an amazing place. I, I wish that I, I really wish that the rest of the corporate world was at least what I see of SIG because it's so unexpectedly awesome. You know, they're, they're so good to their workers. Um, they're, they're just, they, they, they really believe in excellence and, and, and supporting their people. And, you know, that's not even to talk about the product line. That's just to talk about the people that work there. You know, I, I mean, I've worked with some of the most amazing leaders in the military, right. You know, I've worked for, you know, people that became generals and in, in high profile places and company commanders that became generals. And I've worked for, you know, a lot of some of the best leaders in the military, some of them directly. And, you know, I would say the leadership at, at SIG is competitive with, with those guys. So that that's as about a high praise as I could ever say about someone like, you know, about leadership there. And then on and top of that, you get the product too. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's why I think our product is, is really driven to the professional user, right? I mean, it is the individual, you know, that's trying to protect his family. It's the professional that's trying to protect his community. And it's the soldiers, sailors, Marines that are trying to protect the country. You know, we're, we, those are the, and that's, that's the focus of our product line, you know, is, you know, I'm very lucky. I work in uh, the defense strategies group. So, you know, I work in the military business side. So that's everything from, really being a, a customer advocate for SIG, you know, trying to, you know, represent and trying to really meet the military's desired end state within whatever their capability requirements are. And, you know, that comes everything from fulfilling contracts and programs to developing, you know, one-off weapon systems to meet military needs and desires. So there's a lot of interesting aspects of my job, but, you know, our basic tenet is that we, we don't develop anything militarily that we don't believe has a strong commercial presence. And so, you know, a lot of the commercial products that you see are, are derivatives of what the professional user needed and we're able to pass that on to, to the customer. Right. So, you know, and, and when we do believe in that mantra that, that, you know, your individual and the, the loved ones around you, your lives depend on that weapon system when you have it, you know, and, and we talk about it, you know, weekly within our meetings of, of, of that being a, a necessity is, is that the weapons that we, you know, the firearms that we develop have to be the highest level because that, that's the expectation that the professional user and the everyday user needs them to work and, and to be accurate and to be reliable and dependable 
and to be the best that they can have across the board. Yeah, and I, th- I see it every day with SIG of the product and just the communication and the intel that you get from working with different individuals in the organization and how dedicated everybody is to excellence. And that one thing that I've gotten out of it is how that nobody's bigger or better than anybody within the organization. It's like a, like a platoon, like a team, like a, like a locker room, like your boys and your girl, your, your friends, like it's your, your circle. Right. And, and, and I, I'm proud to be a part of it. And I think it's really cool that that soldiers that come back from theater and from defending our rights have places like that because i think what i've picked up on how you talk about sig it's been part of i'm not going to say rehabilitation for you but therapy at least right i mean it's good therapeutic uh aura and and culture is that fair to say when you're in these meetings and you're on the ground when you're on the ground you know working with all of these different folks at sig it's good therapy for your mind right oh undoubtedly because you know we 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 talked about your supporting cast right and i think everyone that leaves the military whether that's after you know one one um geez you know one you know three to four years i don't know why i can't think of the word um, you know, sign it up for one tour, I guess. I don't know. I'm trying to think about, but uh, whether you do that or you do a career, you know, I think that one thing you'll hear a lot of people say is the hardest part is not missing the military. It's missing the people, right? You'll hear people say that all the time. Well, every day I go to work, I'm surrounded by not only people that were veterans, but I'm so, I'm surrounded by people, like I said, that have high expectations and, and, and they believe in their mission. So really from a professional standpoint, I transitioned from an organization that believed in, you know, whatever it takes to accomplish the mission to an organization that believes whatever it takes to accomplish the mission. And I've got strong leadership in both of those organizations. So what, what more could you ask for from a seamless transition, you know, standpoint? Wow. That's awesome. Great way to put it. Well, you know, man, I, I think, thank you. Well, go ahead. You, you think what? No, I would, no, I was just going to say is, you know, when, when we, we met a couple of years ago and, you know, we had kind of talked at the time about a partnership and a year ago, we got back to it and we worked towards it. And, you know, I, I, I thought that, what we talked about at the time is, you know, I, I think your branding, your messaging, your drive and, and the things that you stand for align a lot with our branding as well. Right. So I think that the partnership that SIG and, and your organization has, I think is, is very, 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 um, you know, cohesive. Right. I think that you and I and our organizations believe in the, the same thing. Right. And so I, I appreciate what you do on on the podcast here and I appreciate the, you know, the, the peace of mind podcast and the aspect of specifically pushing second amendment rights. And, you know, we talked about the alignment of the hunting communities and the firearms communities. And it's not just the deer hunter in the Southeast and the, you know, the plinker in the Northwest or the, you know, competitive shooter or the duck hunter. I mean, we're all one community. We all have to, you know, understand that we, we give together and, you know, we receive together. And, And I really appreciate the fact that you work towards, aligning all of those efforts instead of having everyone be in one tribe or one camp. Um, Well, I really appreciate it coming from you. That's a huge, just a huge honor to hear that. And I thank you very much. And that's what I, that's what I always seen is that, you know, it aligns perfectly with who we are because to have the mentality to live off the land or to be a hunter gatherer or a fisher or a farmer or a rancher, you know, you could, just to be a provider to your family, right? That, that, that is the coolest way to live. In my opinion, that's what we were put on earth to do, but you can't do that 
if you're not safe. You can't do that without security and peace of mind. You can't do that without being able to go out and and know that your family is going to be able to get on the school bus or go to school. And and and, and I know that things have happened in this country that 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 put us in harm's way, but we have to be able to defend ourselves. It's just that simple. That uh, that our second amendment rights are everything to myself and our entire organization. I know that you guys are always talking about freedom of arms and you see a lot of it going on in today's society with constitutional carry responsible gun owners are the salt and just the salt of the earth to me in this, in in our communities. And I've never seen anything bad happen with a responsible gun owner. Okay. Somebody, people that we hunt with people that we live by. Um, So I wanted to bring that all together and saying, Hey, I do want to live off the land and I do want to go hunt elk and deer and ducks and geese, but we got to be safe. We have to have that freedom of being able to walk out and be safe in our communities. And I think that SIG promotes that. And I think that the two of us joining and aligning together have told people like, Hey, SIG doesn't make a pistol for duck hunting. That's not what it was ever about to me. It was about when I'm not duck hunting, I'm, I got my SIG by me, right? I'm either plinking with my daughter or I got one by my bed or I got them in my safe and I'm responsible with them. I want to, I don't want to get on a soapbox and preach, but I always want to make sure that I'm talking about gun safety, compassion for the resource, respect for the resource and compassion for the animals that we pursue and making sure that everybody knows that all of that wrapped up into one is what the SIG culture is all about. You're a hunter. You don't go out and just blast a hundred ducks for the heck of it. You go out there to feed your family. I've gotten pictures from you and text messages about your daughter's hunts and, 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 and what, and what that brings to you. I mean, that's everything to me to bring those two together and say SIG stands for all of this. And I think that it's an awesome, awesome message that both of us can deliver on. Well, I, I do appreciate the the way you said that and, 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 your, and your spot on across the board, Chad, 100%. It's, it's you are good, too. It's as good as it gets, right? I mean, yeah. it really is. You know, it, it, I just had, you know, we, we did something just as simple as it could be, you know, I had the, had the kids out fishing, you know, and I got done at the end of the day and, you know, we, we caught some brim and, we, you know, we filleted them up and we got sat down for dinner and I looked at my daughter and I was like, Hey, thanks for putting dinner on the table, you know, and you could just see her beam, you know, like, she's like, yep. you know, I provided for my family. And Nothing then, better. you know, and then I was also like, you see how easy, simple things are bird in this com her nickname's bird. I said, in this complex world, it's the simple things that bring you the most joy. And it wasn't just a, it was a, it was a great day. See, and no pun intended, I get goosebumps and chills listening to you say that because there's no better way to live your life. There's not. And you can, I'm not going to say that anybody's lesser than anybody. I'm just saying, in my opinion, there's no better way to live your life than to be able to do what you just did. Go catch some, what I call bluegill. You call brim. I believe that's the same fish. Yeah, I used to call them bluegill, but I've lived here for 25 years. (laughs) So to be able to do that and know, like when I, I remember, I, I, I just see the look on my daughter's face when she's like, we're eating duck. Well, where are these ones from? They're from the canvasback club and she's got her canvasback mount and it's a pedestal mount on the table. Her first duck ever that it was, we got to document it and she just looks at it and she just brags to her friends like, yeah, that's my first duck. And a lot of her friends don't hunt. 
but they eat wild game when they come over here and they love it. So I, I love the ability to be able to give back through hunting and through fishing and through conservation efforts. And that's what hunters do, man. There's the heart of a hunter and the heart of SIG supporting that culture means everything to me. I don't think there's a bigger heart in the world to, to have the compassion we do for these animals, the respect for these resources, to give the sweat equity and money and financial means that we do to conservation and habitat to put more turkeys in the woods and more elk on the mountain and, and, preda- and predator management. I don't have disrespect for a coyote, Jason. I don't disrespect wolves. I just know that they need to be managed just like every other animal population in the world. So I look at it as a whole encompassing word that comes to mind is sustainability. And if you can understand and educate yourself on what sustainability means, that's what SIG stands for is protect your environment, protect your community, protect your family, protect our country, protect our freedoms. So farmers can go grow food for our crops. So truck drivers can get that food to the stores for our people, to, for our, for our, our, our American, our Americans to have friends and family to go out and be able to buy and have dinner on the table if you don't go out and kill it yourself. But just think about everything that SIG stands for by promoting the, the, the support of the military, the support of the blue line, the support of the Second Amendment, the support of hunting. All of that leads to the best lifestyle in the world. And I feel like it should be supported and respected. And that's why I'm so happy to be part of the SIG family. Well, again, I, I appreciate it. You know, you said about your daughter, you know, like I, I'm, I'm sure you've probably taken the wrap up here. I apologize for keeping on talking, but you know, no, you said, you know, not, not, none of your daughter's friends, huh? You know, and it's kind of fun for me because, you know, my daughter, you know, she comes home and she's like, you know, and I don't know the, the young man, but she's like, Isaiah doesn't believe I have a 20 gauge. And I'm like, well, take him some pictures, you know? And she's like, she's like, no one around here hunts dad. And she goes, that's my thing in my school. You know, she wears that, like she's an individual that, you know, everyone else has similar interests, but she gets to, you know, bring the pictures in and, you know, and, and, and awesome. show them holding a mallard or, or whatever, you know, and, and, it, and it's, and I, you know, when you talk about sustainability, there's no, no, there's no better way to raise your family. There's no better way to raise no. your family to have an appreciation for their environment appreciation for those resources you know and those are if you can appreciate those types of things it's so much easier to appreciate your parents it's so much easier to appreciate the ones that you love and your friends when you when when you're to the level that you appreciate what mother nature can provide that you appreciate the bluegill to make you happy and you appreciate the duck and you appreciate that elk how easy is I, i don't think i've ever met anyone who has an appreciation for the outdoors that doesn't have an appreciation for friendship that doesn't have an appreciation for family and at a high level too at a very high level and i also don't think i've ever met anyone that has that appreciation that doesn't fear, feel charitable and doesn't take actions upon those charities and i've yet to meet anyone that doesn't want to introduce someone to fishing to hunting to shooting to good solid family life i, I I've, I've never seen anyone not want to introduce them people to that, that of the people i'm around so that that is that sustainability that you preach about and i think that you know it's it's, a, it's an amazing message and i think it, it goes a long ways for people to understand how easy it is to live you know realistically if you if you if you put your center focus on appreciation 100 percent. well said by jason st john today's guest on the six hour piece of mind podcast right here at the foul life what a freaking conversation i want to do this again i want to get a hunt scheduled get your daughter out get bird out with us we'll get something on the books for this fall um and make it happen for sure maybe like lean back a little bit in that chair mr jason st john and show me that sweatshirt you're wearing what do you got on there uh rob roberts a shout out to the hey rob roberts introduced us rob roberts is the man 
That is I love true. Rob yep. Roberts. I yeah, love he, me he, some Rob Roberts. Yeah, he's he's easy to love. Easy to love. Uh, I love him. Um, let's uh, let's we'll talk offline here. We'll get some things planned. But man, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for making and opening up doors for our crew and our family and. Um, man, I just love it. I can't wait to see you again. And now that COVID's laying down, let's get together in the woods. I hope you and the do- the family and the kids get on some awesome turkey hunts. Send me a picture of any of your uh, any any of the brim you catch. I'm so jealous of guys that can just go out and catch them at wheel. We don't have very many warm water brim waters around here to go out and have a nice little fish fry. We don't have wa- very good walleye fishing out here. We have trout. I'm not a huge trout fan, um, but man, to be able to go out and get some perch or to get some walleye or to get some brim or, mm. or God, I love having fish fries or pan yeah, frying them up and I love eating them. So Jason St. John, thank you for being here. We will do this again. Man, you're awesome, brother. Appreciate your all of your service to the military and to our country. I appreciate you. Thanks, Chad. Thank you, everybody. We're going to go out with the song that you all know. This is called My Foul Life. The band is 2AM Watcher. Thank you all for listening. Bye.